Welcome to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. On this episode, I'm joined by Public Safety Minister Bill Blair as part of a series of episodes where we're going to focus on gun violence, including an upcoming episode with Ken and Claire Price, whose daughter was in the Danforth shooting. Now, Bill Blair has served a lifetime as a police officer in Toronto, including as the chief of police for a decade. Since 2015, he's been elected as a member of parliament. And since 2018, he has served in cabinet now as our public safety minister, focused currently on strengthening gun control. Bill, thank you for joining me. Happy to be here, Nate. It's good to see, good to see you. I kind of I kind of miss my riding and, and I miss my neighbors. Yes, well, I'm trying to hold down the fort in the East End, and you you are missed, though. I, I did a call the other day with uh, some of our Bangladeshi constituents on both sides, and Ahmed was able to uh, come into it. But you are, everyone knows you're working hard, and obviously with the announcement recently, which we're going to get to, everyone sees you working hard as well. You recently have made a major announcement on strengthening gun control in Canada, there has been a lot of misinformation already about this and some questions about this, certainly. And my community, your community, we want to see stronger gun control. What, what's the nature of this announcement? Give us some specifics of, of what happened a week ago. Yeah, a couple of background things, Nate. You know, you know, and I think most of uh, the people in our communities know, I spent most of my life trying to keep people safe. And, and I very strongly believe that there is so much more we can do to keep guns out of the hands of criminals to keep our communities safe. And we, we made a very significant move, as we had promised to do. We, when we campaigned last year, and you'll remember as we campaigned, we promised people we were going to prohibit assault rifles in, in, our, in our country. You know, there, are, there has been an incredible proliferation over the last 20 years of weapons that weren't designed for hunting or for sport shooting. They were designed for soldiers to kill soldiers. They were designed for military use in combat. Combat. And, and those weapons are very efficient because they are capable of rapid su sustained uh, fire. They're very efficient at killing people, designed to, to kill people, intended to be killed people. And tragically in this country, we have seen people who are intent on mass murder at Ecole Polytechnique, where 14 women were, were killed. I remember and, when I was a kid, I, I, my mom would take us to vigils for the White Ribbon campaign in the wake of the Montreal massacre. And to attend those as a kid and then many years later be the MP that lost uh, con constituents and lost a young liberal in the course of the Danforth shooting. It hits very, very, very close to home. So you, you know, you and they never right. forget, Nate, and I never forget. That was in 1989, and the 30th anniversary just passed uh, on on December the 6th, uh, just this past year, and and we don't forget. But it, and if that was the only incident, then then I think we might have been able to move forward. But six Muslims shot in a mosque in Quebec City, innocent people in in in, in communities right across Canada, and just two weeks ago. 22 innocent people lost their lives, including a police officer, but 22 innocent people lost their lives. And the weapons that were being used in, the, in, in that terrible crime, two of the long guns are in fact these types of guns. They're assault rifles. And that's why the guy armed himself with them because that's the fastest way and most efficient way to kill people. And so it, it demands action. And, and we had promised that we were gonna do it. And so I, I've been really pushing, I, I'll, I'll, I'll admit. And so last Friday, we actually prohibited 1,500 of these kind of weapons. And it's, it's shocking to, to almost all Canadians that there are so many of those around. But what we've seen in the last few years in, in Canada is the gun lobby has been really aggressive about trying to change the culture of gun ownership in this country. We have a long tradition in history and our laws are all based on people having firearms only for hunting and sport shooting. 
and yet the gun lobby, because they're, they're making a ton of money. It's a billion dollar industry in this country. I've been, have been promoting the use of these weapons for self-protection, for people to defend themselves against their fellow Canadians and to use them um, in, in, de, in that defense. That's not the law. And it, it really is, it's modeled on the American style of gun ownership, where in the United States, they have a second amendment. And then in, the, in there, they have the right to bear arms for self-protection. That's a very different culture and, and, frankly, very different values between Americans and Canadians. And so I think, very importantly, in, in prohibiting these types of weapons, we freeze the market, we end that proliferation and the militarization, militarization of our society, we draw a very, very bright line between ourselves and American gun culture and say, that's not the type of country we want to live in. We're going we're to stick to Canadian values. And by the way, a lot of other very sensible countries in the world, New Zealand, Australia, the United Kingdom, have all prohibited these weapons. And now so has Canada. I saw the list and my understanding was there are a specific number of, of models and then with particular characteristics. And so a number of variants, which is how we get up to the, the number 1500. And then I saw online a dispute between and propagated interestingly initially by ostensibly a lawyer from a guns rights organization that somehow this was going to affect a, a 10 or 12 gauge shotgun as well. And I, I couldn't believe that to be true. And I don't think it is true, but it's worth clarifying. And Nate, it's not true. But just to understand where that's coming from, there's very little public support for these types of weapons. But for the people who make their living selling them, they're having a little bit of trouble getting much public support. Because overwhelmingly, Canadians can see there's no real public value into these things. And, and, and all our polling indicates well over 80% of Canadians know that there's no place for these guns in our, in our society. But for the people who make their living selling them, they're trying to get support from hunters. And so they've told their, the hunters that your weapons too, weapons that were not designed to kill soldiers, but were designed to hunt with for ducks and geese and rabbits. And, and, and although, don't get me wrong, I'm, I've got nothing against ducks, geese, or rabbits, that's a legitimate sporting activity in this country. So they've pro propagated this absolute nonsense that we've banned the grenade launcher. A grenade launcher, and frankly, why a grenade launcher was legal in Canada is beyond me, but like nobody needs a grenade launcher. And so we prohibited it. And the grenade launcher has a bore greater than 20 millimeters. The closest to those, but well under 20 millimeters, is the 10-gauge shotgun and the 12-gauge shotgun. And so the gun lobby and the lawyer they paid to put some nonsense out. Um, most lawyers are great, Nate. Honest, they are. <laughs> don't kill us but, all. But, you know, no, no. Shakespeare thought about it, but I don't agree with that. But we also know that, you know, so, sometimes they, they get instructions from their client and they'll put out something. It's not always true. Um, and, and this isn't true. And so just to be really clear, um, the, the uh, no 10-gauge shotgun or 12-gauge shotgun is made prohibited by this list. Those are sporting hunting rifles. And we're not prohibiting those. We're prohibiting weapons that were designed to kill people, assault rep weapons. And by, by the way, the only weapons that we've, I, we've, we've prohibited by characteristic are the grenade launcher and the 50 caliber rifle which is really good for shooting somebody at about two kilometers through a brick wall, in, in, or if you need to knock down the largest elephant ever, ever around, but, but they don't need those in Canada. We've prohibited those by characteristic, and all of the others we've named specifically the 1500 variants. 
it's driving the gun lobby and the gun manufacturers crazy because they were always able to get around our rules. If we would define the characteristics of a weapon, they would quickly modify and adapt what they were selling to get around our rules. And now we've said, no, none of these weapons can be sold here. And, and, and I understand their frustration. They've, they've lost that business opportunity, but we've made Canada safer as a result. And I've seen some columnists already start to say, well, this is not going to be useful or effective because they have basically made up this term military style assault weapon. And while they are banning some semi-automatics and by the way, fully automatic weapons have been banned since 1978. They're now banning. We're now banning some semi-automatics, but not others. How is this list compiled and what is the rationale for including some but not others? Why these models and variants and not other models and variants? All of the weapons that we have prohibited have had certain things in common. They're all of modern design. They were designed for military use after the Second World War. They are all capable of, of rapid sustained fire. They all use center fire ammunition greater than 22 caliber, so 223 and up. Um, and, and they are all the, the ones that we, we, we prohibited all belong to families where more than a thousand of them are present in Canada. There are some very, very uniquely designed ones that we'll get to, but but you know we wanted to move forward with the ones that Canadians actually owned, and and so we've done that. But but the, I think the characters characteristics, and by the way, we we followed a very similar logic and definition that they did in Australia and in New Zealand and the United Kingdom, and as I said, most sensible countries who put the safety of their communities ahead of the profits of the gun industry, do exactly what we have done, and it's the right thing to do. And, and so we've, we've named all of those variants, and they are now prohibited. And by the way, I also want to be clear, because there's a lot of questions I'm getting about this. People who bought those guns did so legally. And so it is not my intention to, to create criminal jeopardy. I don't want to get those people now to be doing something against the law because they're in possession of them. And so we've put in a two-year amnesty, but it's a, it's a, it's a non-permissive am amnesty. The people that own these guns can't use them. They can't take them shooting. They can't take them hunting. They can't sell them. They can't transfer them. They've got to be stored in a safer vault. But until we, we meet again, and when you and I come back to Ottawa, and we're able to bring forward legislation, I'm going to, at the very first opportunity, bring forward legislation that is going to, first of all, deal with a buyback program, so that for those individuals who have those weapons, we want to make sure that they can surrender them and re receive reasonable compensation. I'm not trying to hurt those Canadians who are law-abiding. We're going to do what's right there, but we're going to do what keeps us safe. And so we'll have a, a buyback program that, it, that will be safe and responsible and effective in, in community safety, but also respectful of, of, of those people. And so we're doing that. I'd also like to sort of move past some of those weapons because we, we prohibited a, a large number of very dangerous weapons that really have no place in Canada. But that's not all we're going to do, Nate. As we promised in the campaign, and, and, and as I'm absolutely committed to doing, we're going to bring forward legislation. As I said, that legislation will deal with the buyback program, but it's going to do a lot more. We're looking at all the ways in which criminals get guns. You know, and for example, the tragedy on the Danforth a few years ago, in which two young ladies, lost, young girls lost their life. That gun, as, as you and I both know, was stolen from a gun store in Saskatchewan. And that gun store in Saskatchewan, from where that gun was stolen, faced no consequences for that. I want to ensure that every handgun in this country is stored securely. And so we're going to make very explicit rules on, on the storage of handguns to stop them from being stolen. <clears throat> but we also know 
many of them are smuggled across the border. And, and people want to get into arguments with me all the time about what's the percentage. The, fa the fact is it changes over time. If you put pressures at the border, they, they obtain them other ways. But the border is really important. And so we've already in the last parliament, we made some pretty significant investments at the border. And you'll recall last year, I was the minister of border security and organized. 80 production. some odd million dollars, I recall, for CBSA. To exactly. It was, and, and, and so we made those investments. We put more officers there, more dogs, x-rays, equipment, you know, and, and we also invested $347 million in the police because we know police investigations into the great gangs responsible for smuggling these guns is also really important. And so we made those investments, but there's more to do. And so we're going to bring in legislation that'll give the police new authorities, new access to information, new offenses, and new penalties for people who smuggle those guns and traffic them in our communities. There needs to, we, that's a very serious source of tragedy in our communities, and we're going to take the steps that, to deal with it effectively. And that means make sure that enforcement, our enforcers and our prosecutors have the tools that they need to, to deal with that, but also to make sure that those who engage in that criminal activity face real consequences for it. And the third way, in which criminals get guns is through criminal diversion. Somebody who buys them legally and sells them illegally. And that's a major source of guns in, in, in Canada. And so we are also going to make sure the police have the tools they need to detect, deter, and prosecute those crimes. But also, again, that there are real offenses and real penalties. You know, I, I will tell you in our conversation last year with the, with the, uh, the conservatives on, on gun legislation, they said, well, you know, if, if someone lies to the CBSA and, and sneaks a gun into the border, that should be no, not an offense. And there, there shouldn't be a penalty for that. And it's because they know that many of their supporters are, are doing that. They only want it to be an offense if the gun ends up in the hands of somebody in downtown Toronto. And right. the reality is smuggling is smuggling. That's a crime, and there needs to be consequences for it. And we need to keep those guns out of our country, keep people from diverting them. And then there's a couple of other things. We'll, we'll, things that we need to do, tighten down on ammunition, large capacity magazines. You and I already talked about those, the danger of those capacity magazines earlier. And then finally, and I think this is really important as well, red flag laws. You know, we know, for example, if somebody's suicidal, the cops rarely know, but their doctor might. The family, friend, or a spouse might know. And, and, and if they know, we want to empower those doctors, those families, and those friends to take action, to render that situation safe. We know the presence of a firearm and a suicide, where somebody has suicidal ideation, that can be incredibly dangerous. So we want to remove those firearms and suspend that person's access to them. If somebody's in a, in a bad domestic situation where you know, they're, they're living with the coercion and, and, and control and intimidation of the presence of a firearm and they're at risk of being hurt, we want to empower those, mostly women, to, to be able to take action to render their own situation safe. And, 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 and then finally, there are some people who are, frankly, they're online. They're advocating hate and violence against women, against uh, religious minorities, against vulnerable populations. And when those rag, red flags go up, I want to make sure that we have the, 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 not just the, the legislative tools, but the resources to deal with that quickly, to disarm those individuals. I know from experience how tough it is to prosecute somebody for a hate crime, but we should make sure they don't have access to guns. Right. It's a, a, ver a very different thing from restricting someone's liberty, which is obviously requires significant due process and should be a significant challenge because that is a fundamental right of uh, Canadians versus taking away a privilege of, of owning a gun. Uh, yeah. And so you, you highlighted previously the important distinction between approaches as between 
Canada and the U.S. in terms of that that rights framework, and, and I think it's important for all of us to keep in mind. I'm glad you you also explained some of the moves to come in relation to the border because I don't have national stats. I, I've found those to be difficult to come by, but when I look at Toronto Police Service statistics, I do see a significant percentage of crime guns that come from uh, the domestic that are sourced domestically, but I overwhelmingly the majority is sourced from the United States and and not domestic. So tackling both of those issues is critical at the same time. To to close off the the recent announcement, I I raised my eyebrow a little bit when I saw you had said or the prime minister had said these weapons are not used for hunting overall, and then at the same time Minister Lametti said, but there is an exception for indigenous. Peoples, and then I've seen that be, be a very strong conservative talking point online and, and wondered what the response to that is. Yeah, and, and I will tell you this, and I'm not talking about any individual, but some of the talking points have been outright racist. But we need to be really clear about something. We have a constitution in this country, and, and I will tell you it's the highest law of the land. You know that. And Section 35 of that constitution uh, protects um, certain Indigenous rights, including Indigenous hunting rights. And so I'm going to obey that law. Um, and at the same time, some of the weapons, of, of, of only a small number of the weapons that we are prohibiting, <clears throat> one of them in particular, was not previously a restricted weapon. It, had, it was used by a number of Indigenous hunters for, for their, that activity, and, and many of them use hunting for sustenance. It's, that's useful to understand as well in northern and remote communities. And so out of respect for their constitutional rights under Section 35, we've said even though there's an, uh, uh, during this amnesty period, it's non-permissive and anyone owning any one of those 1,500 guns cannot use them for any, any purpose, we have made an exception, again, only because of that constitutional authority for only for those weapons, not previously restricted, but only those which were not restricted, that during the period of the two-year amnesty, they could continue to be used as they have been used for hunting purposes. But we've also said at the end of the two years, those weapons must be surrendered and, and they'll be compensated for, and then they will have to acquire a different weapon, one that, and that, that can happen before the end of the two years, but it, but it was put in place because we have a legal framework that provides constitutional protection for those activities by Indigenous people in Canada. And, and, and you know, I, I actually believe very strongly in the rule of law, as well as public safety, because I believe that rule of law is the thing that keeps us safe. And I received an email recently from a veteran in Beaches East York, and he sits down and consults with other veterans and, and uh, engages with them on any number of issues. And they haven't been particularly happy with us in the past, I'll tell you, on veterans issues. But on this, I received an email and he said, I sat down with local veterans and we all agree that a civilian should not have in their hands a military, a, a weapon that has been designed for military use. And... You had previously indicated there there are uh, specific characteristics for these models and variants, and yet I still hear from some conservatives and columnists, military style is sort of a, a fake term and and not a, a, a legal term. But these veterans seem to think absolutely these weapons were designed for military use, and and that was a credible claim. Yeah, and 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 Nate, very simply, every soldier and every cop knows what an assault rifle is. And we don't have to argue about characteristic. People who sell these guns for a living, they, they're always looking to, to get around the rules. And quite frankly, people who rely on that gun lobby um, for their funding, 
and for their support. And, and it's really awkward right now. There's a, a, a bit of a debate going on um, in the other party because they've got a leadership thing. And you're not going to win that leadership without the support of the gun lobby. And so that's that's skewing some of their remarks right now. We'll just give them a bit of a, a slack on that while they get through that. But but as you said, every soldier and every, every cop knows what those weapons are. Um, you know, I, I've been to 11 police funerals. Where the where the where the officer was shot and killed with one of these weapons. When in in Moncton, for example, there was a guy who had one of these guns. Um, he went out hunting police officers. He murdered three Mounties, and 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 there was a great hue and cry that the Mounties were outgunned. Well, the government of the day, it was the Harper government, decided that let's give the the Mounties bigger guns so that they could fight back. My answer to that is a guy who used to be responsible for killing keeping a city safe is why the hell are we going to have a firefight like that in our in our city? Why don't we just disarm the deranged guy and keep everybody safe that way? And and so, and I will tell you, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police have been for decades calling on successive governments to ban these weapons. They've, they've said there's no place for these guns in our society. The Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police have all come out and urged the government and said they support completely the prohibition, the ban, on these assault weapons because they know they're used to kill police officers, but they're also used to kill innocent citizens. Chief Mark Saunders, the, the day we announced the, the, the prohibition, came out very, very strongly in support, and, and, he, and he called me. Um, I've, I've worked with him for years, and he said, this is the right thing to do, and this will contribute to public safety. And, and so the people who are responsible for keeping us safe know overwhelmingly this is the right thing to do. And the people who instead profit from the sale of these things, now they had a pretty bad day on Friday. And about that issue of public safety, because when I hear about the measures to come, and I think maybe collectively these measures will move the needle on public safety, the specific ban of a certain number of models of uh, semi-automatic assault rifles and leaving some other semi-automatic rifles potentially unbanned. And I mean, I, 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 I do wonder about how much this particular initiative moves the needle on its own or is about instead setting cultural norms and we look to the United States you mentioned before and we see the legislature in Michigan with people with armed you know armed civilians entering the legislature in a terrifying way and is it about drawing a, a bright line as between those cultures yeah you know you mentioned it earlier Nate and a really important thing our Supreme Court of Canada has said and it's our versus Wiles, by the way, and the Haswander decision as well. Has, has, I, I love talking to a lawyer because I can explain these things to him. He'll go look them up. In, in those cases, they very clearly articulated that firearm ownership in this country is not a right. It's a privilege. And it's a privilege by Canadians who earn that privilege by obeying all the rules and, and, and using their weapons in a very responsible, conscientious and law abiding way. And, and over the past couple of years, we have seen... I think a really aggressive effort on behalf of those who manufacture and sell guns and promote the guns in our in our country to, to change the culture of Canada, a, a culture and a, and a legal framework for guns that's all about, in, in Canada, the only legal way to acquire and use a gun is for hunting and sports purposes. America's different. America has, has a Second Amendment, and, and American gun culture and gun laws have all been developed on, on the premise that people arm themselves for self-protection to protect themselves and their home and from each other. And there's a very, very different framework for, for, for gun control in, in our two countries. People that manufacture those would like to see Canada come that way. I think last Friday, and for me, this was, this was I think, my greatest motivation. We drew a bright line 
on last Friday, a bright line for all Canadians and said, no, our laws are going to reflect Canadian values and the Canadian fra legal framework for the use of guns. We're going to protect that principle that it is a privilege, not a right. And, we, and firearms in our country are not for us to defend ourselves from each other but rather only for sporting purposes, hunting and sports shooting. And, and so the weapons that were, are designed entirely to defend people against, like for soldiers to kill soldiers, they have no place in, in, a, in, a, in a legal framework or in a culture where the only legal use for firearms is for hunting and sports shooting. And so we've eliminated them and we've drawn that bright line and we've defended our values and we've defended our way of life. And our way of life isn't predicated on, we're all, look, look, look at the situation in the United States. And you mentioned that situation in Michigan where a bunch of people carrying these types of terrible weapons and, and they, they come into their, their legislature clearly to intimidate. And, and you know, for a country that, that claims to love democracy, I can't think of a greater threat to, to democracy than a bunch of yahoos with military weapons parading themselves in, bef in before their house of, of the legislature. And so that's not who we are. And last week we declared very strongly that that's not who we are. You mentioned attending a number of funerals for colleagues in the force. I have only attended one funeral of someone who lost their life because of gun violence. And that was Reese Fallon because of the Danforth shooting. And I'll tell you, I I have never experienced that kind of tragedy so very close uh, until that that time period and I have never ge I've never had a harder time giving a speech than the speech I gave at, at Reese's funeral and it was wonderful to see the community rally around Reese's family but it 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 still breaks my heart and it's still something that they will never recover from and she was killed by a handgun and so our community is very Happy to see strong gun control move forward when it comes to assault weapons, but there is, I would say, a, a fairly a frustration that even our promise on the platform doesn't isn't going to take us into an effective and useful place, and that we aren't moving fast enough. Well, and and, and I understand, and, and by the way, I've stayed in touch with families uh, that were affected by that terrible tragedy, um, as well as, you know, there are, there are emergency room doctors and, and, and nurses and community members who have remained strong advocates. You know, as the prime minister said last week when we announced this, we've all got to accept that thoughts and prayers aren't enough. And I, I believe it's a, it's a great disservice to the memory of everyone who has lost their life to gun violence and to all of us who have been profoundly changed by the experience of knowing people who've lost their life to gun violence. And I, I will tell you, I have. Uh, been, been, I, I, for a very long time, was responsible for keeping the people of Toronto safe. And every single time a person was injured in gunfire, it was very personal to me, because it was a failure to me. And I was frustrated by the, the laws and by the, by, by the tools that were available. And one of the reasons I decided to get into politics. And, and after I retired from the police service to, to go to Ottawa was to find an opportunity to do a better job of protecting people. And, and I want to assure all of us, you and, and everyone who was affected by these things, I believe that we need to do so much more than thoughts or prayers. That's, it's just not good enough. And we have to do more and we're doing more, Nate. And, and so what we did last Friday is an important first step. But I just want to assure everybody, it's a step in a much longer journey. And we're going to continue to do the things that make a difference, that are going to be effective. I've looked at all the ways in which criminals get their hands on guns. We're going to cut off that supply. But we're not going to stop there. 
because we also have to look at all the reasons why people want to get their hands on guns in the first place. And we've got to invest in kids, invest in communities, and look at all the circumstances that give rise to violence in our communities. And we've got to step into that space. And we've got to do everything. Like, people just keep on saying, well, that one thing doesn't do it. And, and, but that's not an excuse not to do the one thing. It's a reason to do that one and then move on to the next one. And so that's what we're doing. You know, we, we put forward, I think, a, what I think is one of the most comprehensive gun reform and gun control uh, proposals in, in, in our country's history. We're going to make a difference and we're not going to stop because not whatever needs to be done, we're going to do. And on handguns, we promised in our platform to give greater authority to, pro to municipalities, I should say. I've long thought that a default setting at the federal level would be the most effective. I don't want to put the onus on Ken and Claire Price, whose daughter was in the Danforth shooting and, and they're strong gun advocates. I'll be talking to them at, later this week. I don't want to put the onus on the victims of the Montreal massacre. I don't want to put the onus on victims of gun violence to go city by city by city to change gun laws. I would much prefer a baseline and then if a particular community, a particular municipality wants to liberalize and loosen those restrictive gun laws that are at the federal level, then they may have the power to do so. Do you, do you think there is a, a useful debate to be had there? Yeah, I really do, Nate. And, and, and first of all, you know, you mentioned some, some of the people that have been so effective in their advocacy. And, 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 and it is sometimes a terrible consequence of tragedy that people become strong advocates. But I want to also take the opportunity to say how grateful I am to their advocacy. And, and they, they've worked through their pain and they, and they have just kept pushing. And that push has great value to me. And I've got to bring a whole government along and then a whole country along. Uh, on this stuff. And, and you've already seen there's pretty good organized resistance and they got a lot of money and they got a lot of uh, push. Okay. I don't, I don't care because I got good pe people standing behind me pushing too. And it's all those advocates and all those victims and families and people who communities have been really impacted by this that are demanding we make a difference and make a change. We have a minority government. Right? I'm going to bring forward legislation as soon as that minority government comes back. The one thing about a minority government is we're going to you have to listen to a lot of different perspectives. And so there will be a vigorous debate. And, you know, and people have asked, you know, what's the what's the buyback program going to look like or how are you going to deal with handguns and how is all, all this going to be done? I have some proposals to make, but that's what they are. Their proposals, and we'll bring that legislation back to Parliament. There will be a vigorous debate, and you know, it's this is not one of these situations where we can whip a vote and pass a bill. We're going to have to convince the other parties to to support it, and and I I think it's very important that we take the time to do that. But at the same time, let's always remember that push that stands behind us of all those victims and advocates who want us to do so much more than just keep them in our thoughts and prayers. And you've mentioned the two lawful, legitimate uses of hunting and of sport shooting. And I am not a gun advocate and gun user. I, I shot a handgun once when I was at an L.A. gun club with a friend many years ago. And I can understand, as a pitcher in university and throughout most of my life playing baseball, I can understand, and, you know, I've done archery a few times. I, I, hitting targets is fun. Should a weapon be available in private possession to allow for that to happen? I struggle to understand why that balance is struck. But central storage, where we ban the private possession of handguns or we ban the private possession of some of these more violent weapons, 
but allow for their continued use on a licensed, heavily secured facility, is that a place where there's maybe some compromise or, or, or do you think it's too difficult to, to get there? I, I will tell you it's difficult. I'll, I'll also tell you, Nate, that like, I carried a gun for nearly four decades. I have never used one recreationally. Like it, for, for me, it was a tool of my job. Um, and, and another thing I just, another one of many things we, we use to keep people safe. Um, but I do, I, I, re, I actually respect people who do engage in the sporting activity, hunting or sports shooting in a law abiding, conscientious and responsible way. And, and I have met lots of them. And uh, let's be fair to a lot of Canadians who are really, really conscientious about how they, they, they acquire their firearms legally, they store them securely. They use them safely. When, if, when it's time to, to dispose of one, they do it according to all the rules. And we've got a lot of rules um, pertaining to firearm acquisition and ownership and use. Um, and, and I got a lot of respect for people who work hard to obey all the rules that we impose upon them. Um, I have a lot less respect for people that are less conscientious and less respectful of the law. Um, but which, what I'm trying to do is, is, is work out the way in, like, how, how we keep Canadians safe from those guns. And, and there's a lot of different perspectives. And the one that you shared, I think, is one that certainly worth discussing. Um, I've traveled actually across the country. Many people in large urban centers see, it, see the issue exactly as you've articulated. And in other parts of the country, they have a different perspective. And that's part of the challenge of being in a cooperative confederation, such a vast country with so many different perspectives, trying to figure out how to pass federal legislation that is respectful of, of all Canadians. But, but uh, I never lose my sight, my, the sight of the most important thing is keeping people safe. And so we'll find the best way to do that. It's interesting you draw the distinction. I'm always wary of being on guns in particular, having been so deeply affected by the Danforth shooting, representing an, an urban area that, of course, wants stronger gun control and doesn't see a use for handguns in our society, let alone more dangerous weapons like semi-automatics. But I, my family on my wife's side is from southwestern Ontario, a small town, Kamlaki, which is outside of Petroli, which is outside of Sarnia, and many of them are, are farmers or have been farmers. And I asked, uh, I was at a wedding and I asked one of Amy's uncles a bit hesitantly, you know, I didn't know where this conversation was going. And I said, what would you think about a stricter ban on handguns? And he went, mate, that's your city problem. We don't use handguns here. This is not our problem. And he went on to tell me a story about how when he was a kid, uh, a gun, not a handgun, but a gun had been stored at, at a friend's place and it was loaded in a way that it shouldn't have been and it went off and, and killed someone. And he has, this is, I'm having a conversation in rural Canada where he's been deeply affected and he says, go, go to it and, and, and get it done. So it's interesting how these different perspectives play out, but how there's also shared perspectives in many respects as well. Yeah, what will happen, Nate, whatever we do with guns, there will people be people in the gun lobby and politicians who who count and rely on the gun lobby to support them, who will tell all the hunters and farmers that whatever we do, we're coming for their guns, and and they'll scare the daylights out of them. And that's why this story about, you know, that, that our, uh, the prohibition on grenade launchers somehow affects people's duck and <laughs> and and rabbit guns. It's just it's it's just a fiction. And people keep on pushing that nonsense out to scare those hunters and farmers so that they'll support their industry and, and their love of weapons that frankly aren't for hunting or sport shooting. And, and so, and, and, and it's, it's, it's a little frustrating, you know, some of our colleagues who I admire and respect tremendously 
um, have been contacting me for the last couple of days, absolutely in a panic. You know, does this mean I'm losing my shotgun? They said, well, no, actually read the thing. And of course it doesn't. But, you know, I think all Canadians are a little susceptible to a little distrust of the motive of government. And so we've got a little extra work to do, Nate, to con convince people that we have, we are respectful of their lived experience and that we just want laws that keep everybody safe. I have a couple of personal questions for you. When did you, how old were you when you joined the force? 1976, I was 22 years old. So fast forward many decades and you've now been the point, point person for cannabis legalization. And I thank you for that. We've, we've had our share of disagreements overall, but I think we landed in a place where you and I could both be comfortable, which is not always an easy place to be on drug laws. And if you told yourself at that age that decades later you'd legalize cannabis, would it have been believed? Uh, yeah, no, of course not. But but let me, <laughs> let me let me just clarify that, Nate. In 1976, I was 22 years old. I saw the world in a very different place, and it was based on a pretty limited lived experience. I then spent 40 years working to keep the people of Toronto safe. I met a lot of people um, and, and people in a lot of different circumstances. And I, I, I will tell you, even at 22, I didn't think the law was an end in itself. I thought the real end was just public service, public safety. And, and I learned the value of certain legal tools and the utility of certain legal approaches. And, and I became frustrated, and, and you and I have discussed this before, with, with how poorly enforcement was helping us to keep our kids safe. And it was enriching people that I didn't want to see enriched, organized crime. And it was putting a lot of people at risk. And, and, and you know, the lived experience of being the police chief in Toronto for such a long time and working in, in, in some of our most diverse neighborhoods taught me a few things. And I, I tried to learn those things and, and figure, start to think about, you know, other ways of keeping people safe, other ways of protecting our children, other ways of dealing with organized crime. And, and frankly, we came to the conclusion that the way we were trying to manage cannabis was a mess. It, was, it wasn't achieving any of the public purposes that we said we were trying to achieve. It was a smarter way to do that. I didn't know that when I was 22. I kind of figured it out by the time I hit 60. Well, I've, I, as you know, I've been a, a vocal advocate for reforming our drug laws, and I've focused principally on the need to do so because we have an opioid crisis. But when we talk about gun violence, gang violence is so strongly associated with gun violence in our cities. And the reason we see so much gang violence at times is oftentimes because of the war on drugs and the ongoing drug war and ongoing drug prohibition. So Taking that lens to it, I think, is, is one that we ought to take as well. Nate, I, I'd acknowledge it's a factor, but there are a lot of different social conditions that give rise to why young people get involved in gangs. And then there's another important transition as well as why they believe that violence, in particular gun violence, is the way in which they can resolve their disputes or advance the interests of their, their enterprise. Um, the, the, all, all of those things are problematic. And, and you know, we, we talk about that. And one of the challenges I face as I, as I travel across the country that I always faced as the police chief in Toronto, a lot of people are prepared to dismiss young people that get involved in gangs because they're from not from our community and they're, they're from they look like somebody, somebody else. Exactly. You know, there's, there's always a little bit of the, the racism underlying it. But I always come back to it. It's got nothing to do with what people think it has to do with. It's got everything to do with social injustice. 
unemployment, lack of opportunity, you know, bad outcomes in school. And it's really interesting when you look at, we, 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 you know, we often talk about the social determinants of health, which is also directly related to the opioid crisis. And those social determinants are, are exactly the same social determinants of crime and of violence in our community. And so if you really want to make a difference, like there are some people, listen, I've spent my life doing it too, and, 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 and dealing with those individuals, some people are just so dangerous you got to put them in jail to protect society from them because we have failed so badly with that kid or that individual that there's no choice now. But we, if to really make a safe and better life for all of us, we've got to look into our communities, look into those kids, help them make better choices, and change the circumstances that give rise to that gang violence. And it's not the same in every part of the country, but the social conditions that give rise to it are, are hauntingly similar. And so we've got to start working on those things too. Well, that's a good point. I... I, I mentioned the drug war because it creates such a strong economic opportunity for for criminals that it is bound and then leads to turf wars. And I, I've spoken to retired police officers from the States who said they spent their whole life clearing out one area of, uh, of a gang involved in, in trafficking. And what happened then? It meant that there was a wide open space for violence to occur, to take over that space. And in the end, they weren't sure that they'd accomplished a whole lot. But you couldn't be more right to focus on community investment, addressing social determinants of health. And when we see a policy like the Canada Child Benefit lifting hundreds of thousands of kids out of poverty, long term, if we were to better address poverty, better address income inequality, we'd probably see less gun violence. And that would do far more in many ways long term than some of the short term actions we're even talking about today. Yeah, and you know, I and you know, we used to do these big gang investigations. Nate and I oversaw them, and even before I became the chief, where we would go into wiretaps, and then we'd go in and kick down a hundred doors at five thirty on a Wednesday morning. I could never figure out why they didn't know we were coming, but, but we would do all that, and we'd drag everybody out, and and realize very quickly though, we traumatized that neighborhood because it was a scary thing for everybody who lived there. All of a sudden, all the doors would splinter and come crashing down, and we would drag a hundred people out of their neighborhood. Um, and it was really tough and tra traumatic for that community, and it didn't make them safer. And and so we changed our approach completely when I became the chief, police chief. And we'd still have to go in and take out those gangs, but we would flood the area with police officers who were trained to reach out to communities and kids to, to calm things down and to provide that reassuring presence to enable all of this, the, the social workers, the teachers, family members, bring their kids back out into public space, engage with each other, and start providing those supports and services to the broader community, it, that worked incredibly well. Because when we just went in and arrested everybody, things went right back to as bad as it was within three or four weeks. But we, when we went in and held the community in a very supportive way, when, when again, those social workers and, and teachers and community leaders could come out and engage with those kids, two years later, the difference was still there. It was a safer place, and there was far less crime and far less violence. It's it's kind of a labor-intensive way to do things, but it's overwhelmingly the right way to do things. And so I, I learned from that experience. I, I I will tell you, if we could keep those kids in school another year, we could make a difference. If we if we we resolved, I, I talked about social injustice. There is disparities in outcome, disparities in health outcomes, disparities in education outcomes, disparity in income outcomes and jobs and things like that. We need to start addressing those disparities right across our society if we're going to have the safe and livable places and cities that we want. And then we'll also have to deal with the instruments of crime, guns and, and violence. But it, you can't just do one thing. You got to do a thousand things and you got to do them all really well.
Well, Bill, I appreciate your time. And I have to say, I also appreciate people in ministerial positions who have had a lifetime of management and organization, because I, I think you can see the effectiveness of someone in that role who's, who's had that kind of experience before. And so I appreciate all of your work to date. And I, I'm glad that later tonight I can go home and use my vaporizer and, and I thank you for it. And, and Nate, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining me, Bill. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Nate. You take care and, and be healthy. The best, best Amy and, and, and your family and to all of your community. I really appreciate the opportunity to say hello. Same to you. And I, I hope I get invited back for a late night scotch in your backyard at some point. Now that could work. <laughs> all right. Take care. <laughs> okay. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Uncommons. I appreciate Bill's time too. We share a riding boundary here in the East End of Toronto, so we're often at the same events in normal circumstances. Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca. As I say, we'll have another conversation about gun control with Ken and Claire Price, who have been deeply affected themselves by the Danforth shooting and have come out of that as incredibly strong advocates for strengthening our gun laws.